Let me welcome all of you again to Uplift. My name is Kyle. Uh, this message is going to be streamed for our conversation on Sunday morning. So if you're joining, joining us Sunday, glad you're here. And if, you're, if you found us through our podcast, Anchor Point, we're so glad that, you, uh, that you're listening. We're in a four-week series here. This is week number two uh, called All Things New. That's the name of the series. Our God really likes doing new things. And this series, hopefully, is going to be a fresh word in your life that new things are coming for you. I want to show you the cover of a book. This is a 1984 book called The Postmodern Condition. I like to show you these books. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, it's written by, it's an English translation by French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard. Now, let me tell you why I'm telling you this book. In this book, it was published in 1984, he described the era in which we live, and he called it this. I've got the phrase for you so you can see it. He called it a suspicion of meta-narratives, a suspicion of meta-narratives. Now, let me explain to you what that is, kind of give you a debrief of the book and kind of explain this. So until the 20th century, so we're in the 21st century now, so until the 20th century, people generally believed that history was the sum of all of its parts, that everything kind of worked together, that there was all one cohesive narrative for all of world history, and that truth was a real, actual, absolute concept. So to kind of translate that, social struggles, government interventions, Christianity or science, they were all meta-narratives, but they were all parts of a larger mosaic that would eventually be recognized and seen as working together. That's kind of how people lived their lives until the 20th century. Now, our world, the 20th century and even the 21st century, it doesn't sound like that at all, really. I mean, our view of the world is drastically different than that. Uh, even the events of, uh, the, of the past handful of years show us that things don't necessarily work together, and we don't really even think that anymore, right? We've kind of witnessed in the past five or six years some really big, awful things, and they happen with an obvious disconnect, right? So uh, a global pandemic or unrest, protests, riots, violence, division, all of these are meta-narratives, but they don't seem to feed into some big mosaic. There doesn't seem to be a sum of all of these parts, and the walls between all of these meta-narratives, they, they don't really seem to be able to be breached. We are suspicious of all of these things. And I, th- I think I could say this, that we don't really feel that humanity is working together for some common goal. We don't, we don't think that anymore. I don't even think we're taught that. I don't think I was. Our, and, and really, our thoughts are betrayed by the prayers we pray, right? How often do we pray and ask God to heal divisions? We pray that all the time. We, are, we see these divisions, and we know that they're not really working together. So Jean, Jean-Francois Lyotard forecasted this, or he rather identified it in his book. He wrote that the current experience of modern life, what we experience right now, is just an experience of disconnected events. Again, a suspicion of meta-narratives. <laughs> Marriages and governments and politics and career moves, those all may be good or bad in their own right, But modern society doesn't really believe that these things add up to one meaningful whole. They're just all disconnected. And the way we've been taught to see the world is that we're all just silos with stories 
that don't really connect with anyone else's. That's kind of how we see the world. So, so truth, really, as, as we've come to define it or live it, is momentary, right? It's flippant. It's bound to your circumstance alone. It's fluid. It can change. I mean, if we're all just silos with siloed situations, then what we feel at any given moment really is chief. And so really, we're, we're, we're a culture of skeptics. We're a generation and a culture of skeptics. Even if we don't like to admit it, right? We don't like to admit that, I don't think. Even if we believe we should, you've seen this phrase, trust but verify. Seen that phrase before? Used that phrase before? If you use that phrase, that's really just a more palatable version of skepticism. And, and by the way, that phrase, trust but verify, it's an old Russian proverb, and it was taught to President Ronald Reagan by his advisor and historian Suzanne Massey in 1984 as he was dealing with Mikhail Gorbachev. So Reagan actually liked this phrase, and he co-opted, and he used it regularly, but the first time he used it in public was in December of 1987, when he and Gorbachev were signing the INF Treaty, which prohibited each nation from producing nuclear missiles with specific ranges. If you're ever on Jeopardy, you're going to know all the answers, right? That phrase actually dictated Reagan's approach to the treaty, and it made Russia, and this is it, this is the point, it made Russia undergo extensive verification programs. So he said, trust, but verify. It's a good phrase. But you know what it does? It equates trust with proof, that they're the same thing. It's still skepticism. It's not blind trust. To prove it to you. I mean, really... This is somewhat disheartening, but I think it's true. We really live in a perpetual state of disbelief. Uh, we, we don't believe anything we see. And the advent of AI makes us distrust what we hear and what we see as deep things. We, we can't really trust or know anymore, and we've been taught that. So we're all skeptics, and we're well-trained skeptics, even when we think we are. Which makes the opening of the Gospel of Mark so startling to me. I want you to listen to it. This is from Mark Chapter 1, verse 1. This is how Mark began his story. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. Now, this sentence makes a startling claim. And let me tell you what it does. It says that there is something new for the skeptic. That's what it says. Uh, it's not easy to bring something new to a skeptic. Still, It still isn't not easy for us. We don't trust anything. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark. The book of Mark, according to tradition, was written in the city of Rome in the first century by John Mark. You've seen his name in the New Testament. He was a disciple of Jesus. And according to the early church fathers, John Mark recorded the teachings of the apostle Peter. So if we're to trust the church fathers, what you read in the gospel of Mark is generally a recollection of the apostle Peter. And it was the first of our four Gospels chronologically ever written, which makes it the very first story about Jesus ever written. Pretty cool. So this, this book, the book of Mark, before Mark wrote this book, there was no template. There was no such thing as any story about Jesus. Nothing like this had ever even been written. I mean, Mark had no way to research this story. So, I mean, you kind of, 
think before he sits down and he writes this, what's he going to do? Well, he, he does probably what most of us would do if we had no template. He decided to write just the facts, and that's kind of how the Gospel of Mark reads. In fact, when I speak with people who have questions about, uh, about Christianity or have questions about Jesus, I tell them to read the Gospel of Mark first. All the pick of the New Testament books, that's the one, because it's just bite-sized. It's easy to read. It's easy to digest. Mark wrote it that way. It's just a plain book. His gospel is ordinary. It's glaringly pedestrian. It's just got normal stuff, right? The first time anybody wrote a story about Jesus, what does Mark do? He puts stories in there of gatherings and farmers and dinner parties and family drama and fishermen, and he tells the story of a carpenter's son. It's a normal book. It's a normal piece of literature. I want you to listen to what Eric Auerbach, who was, who was an early 20th century German literary critic, this is what he said. It's a profound comment about the Gospel of Mark. I've got a quote for you on the screen. This is what Auerbach wrote. The Gospel portrays something which neither poets nor the historians of antiquity ever set out to portray. The birth of a spiritual movement from within the everyday occurrences of contemporary life. He said it. It's the first time anything like this has ever been written. Which thus, he continues, which thus assumes an importance it could, have ne- it, never, it could never have assumed in antique literature. It's too serious for comedy. It's too everyday for tragedy. Politically, it's too insignificant to history. And the form which was given it is one of such immediacy that its like does not exist in the literature of antiquity. It's the first of its kind. It's a normal, ordinary story. There's nothing pretentious here, at least on the surface. Because even though it's written in everyday language, Mark's story did not shortchange the story of Jesus. Mark was extremely careful with his word choices. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he inaugurated a new genre of writing centered around one particular word found in Mark's very first sentence. Listen again. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word is the word gospel. And that word And this piece of literature is something new for the skeptic, then and now. So here's what we're going to do for the next few moments. I want to show you why the gospel is something new for the skeptics. Now, I want you to listen to me before we kind of jump into this. There's there's this thing in our spirit. We all kind of have it, and it it tells you right now to distrust most of the data you receive. I have it. I don't believe anything I read, right? It's there. We have it. Whatever that is, that emotion, that feeling, that that thought, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to take those thoughts captive in the name of Jesus, as Paul once wrote. And I want you to let the gospel be the new thing that you need right now, even if you don't think you do. That's my challenge to us. Now, let's jump in. There are three things here, three reasons why the gospel is something new for the skeptics. Here's the first one. The gospel is new because it's bold, because it's bold. Let's talk about that for a minute. Now, Mark, we've said this, Mark was the, uh, he was the first person to write a gospel, but there's even more to this. Listen, listen to how profound this is. He's the first person 
in history to use the word gospel, to use that word as the title and description of a piece of literature. I'm going to tell you why that matters in a minute. Now, you're going to find the word gospel in other New Testament books that were written before the gospel of Mark, notably Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. You're going to find the word gospel in those two books. But you're never going to find it in reference to any written book. Other New Testament writers use this word as the title of their message, but they never used it as the title of a book, of an entire piece of literature. In fact, let's go a little deeper. The New Testament writers weren't even the first to use the word gospel. They didn't make this word up. The word gospel was actually first used in the Roman Empire for political propaganda. That's where it came, that's where it comes from. In fact, you remember the definition of gospel, right? What is it? Good news. Good news. That's the definition. That's always been the definition. That's not changed. It's always been that definition. But before the New Testament writers used this word, the, the word gospel was used chiefly in reference to the benevolence or the victories of the Roman emperor. And by the way, the Roman emperor, he was known as Caesar. He was celebrated as a god. So when Rome, the word gospel was only known as the good news from the God called Caesar. But what Mark did is he hijacked this imperial word. Now, it was spoken in house churches for 30 years. It was written in letters, right? But what he did is he took that word and he actually uses it to make a pretty bold statement because he wrote a book and he called it the gospel. He wrote a book, a document to be circulated, copied, read out loud, a document that he called gospel that was not the good news of the Roman emperor, but the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand the weight of this, right? Mark risked treason and even death by crucifixion with such a declaration, as did every house church in Rome who had a copy of this book. This gospel... Mark's written account about Jesus made every believer in Rome an immediate target. For for Mark's original audience to hold a copy of his gospel and to believe the words written there was itself its own commentary on their own existence. They were citizens of the city of Rome, and because of their citizenship there, you know this, you can Google it later, they endured unspeakable horrors of torture and death because they believed the gospel about Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. This is a new thing. This is a new thing. The gospel is bold. It empowers people to take risks they wouldn't otherwise take with no immediate or apparent physical upside. I mean, let me ask you, what other doctrine or policy or organization or government is as bold and compelling as the gospel. I mean, I don't know about you, but I see some irony here. Mark's audience felt physical anguish and pain for what they believed to be good news. Let me say that again. They felt physical anguish and pain for what they believed to be good news. It's all, it's all very meta. I mean, the good news in which they believed could get them killed. I can't say that with any more force. Mark's book circumvented reason and popular thought and said 
that the good news about Jesus is really as important as it claims to be. Mark believed in Jesus, and he believed that the good news about Jesus would do something urgent and necessary and critical for believers who endured horrible things. His book, his gospel about Jesus, stands against any government or cultural movement. In fact, it stands alone. And Mark's proposition is pretty simple here in this first statement, even with the whole book, that there is one truth. There's just one, one absolute. And that one truth circumvents any other perception. And it's this, that the life of Jesus is good news. And that's bold. That's bold. The gospel is also new for the second reason, because it's defined. It's defined. I mean, really, if you're like me, born skeptics, right? The first thing we're going to ask is, well, why is any of this good news? What is it? Well, Mark tells us. Mark tells us. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump to Mark chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there. We're going to be there, read an extended passage in a moment. Mark chapter 3. And in this passage in Mark 3, Mark recorded an interesting statement made by Jesus. And it's a statement that defined the gospel about Jesus. Here's the context. Jesus is in a house in Mark chapter 3. And he's defending himself against both his critics and his family, right? That seems a little familiar for most of us. The critics he expected, family, not so much. His family showed up. We're going to reference them a little bit later. His family showed up to get Jesus to stop making trouble. Now, early in the chapter, it actually says they came to lay hands on him. They came to forcibly stop him. This wasn't a, a polite meeting and appointment. They were going to stop him. So Jesus didn't really directly answer his family. He did his critics, not his family. Here's how Mark tells it. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 31. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and and the crowd said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered the crowd, "Who, who who are my mother and my brothers? What a question, right? Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother, my brothers. And pay attention to verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus said something kind of interesting about family here. He kind of reinvents, redefines family in the process. That family is really comprised of those who do the will of God. That's what Jesus said. Now, what that statement means in the larger context of this book is that doing the will of God is the gospel about Jesus defined. That's what it is. But it seems a little anticlimactic, right? A little banal. I mean, really, seen through the lens of a Christian heritage, we can probably pretty proudly say that we know exactly what the will of God is, right? We kind of have that. We may even say it smugly, right? I've, been, I've done the will of God all my life. We've done this all our lives. I know what I'm doing, but, but hang on, not so fast. In a, bringing up this phrase again, in a suspicion of meta-narratives in various ideas of truth in a world of skeptics, defining anything isn't easy, but even defining the gospel is not easy. 
Because society, in millions and billions of ways, has defined what the gospel is or should be. And you and I have to reckon with those definitions. We have to. Because culture has decided almost collectively that doing God's will is a lifestyle wrapped around tolerance. Now, even though we know that Jesus, as the only one who perfectly executed God's will, wasn't always tolerant. Mark realizes this, and he realizes that we need to see the will of God in action. So defining this is going to be, it's going to, we're going to kind of take a little extension here, because really, if, if the gospel is the absolute truth for a culture of skeptics and doing the will of God is what it means to know and be and live the gospel, then we need to know a little more. So what Mark does is he defines it for us, but he doesn't do it through Jesus' words. He does it through his actions. So as told in Mark, the third thing about this new gospel is that it's new because it's modeled. So we're going to kind of extend number two and the number three. We're going to skip ahead to, to Mark chapter 14. We're running a thread all the way through Mark, Mark chapter 14. Now, let me set this up for you. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and it's just before his crucifixion at the hands of the Roman government. Now, that's important because as Mark's audience lived in Rome, many of them would be crucified or at least know someone who would be because of the gospel. So it's in this garden where Jesus prayed this. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 36. You know this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be crucified. But if it's your will, then I'm going to do it. Let's break this down, this this modeling of the gospel. And first, I want you to notice how Jesus referred to God. What did he call him? Abba. Abba. That's the Hebrew word Jewish children used for their own fathers. Now, why did he use that word in this prayer? Well, I'll tell you why. In Jesus' own words, in Mark chapter 10. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. In the moments before his death, doing the will of God, he modeled what this actually meant. In his most torturous moment, Jesus himself became like a child. And he modeled that for which he calls all disciples. And as a child, he accepted the will of God while praying it might be otherwise. He did, he did it. He did the will of God. He didn't explain it with some definition. He did it. Now, this is new stuff for skeptics, right? This is is new stuff because... We're, we're, we're taught, we're being uh, cultured to, to think that tolerance is how we should love people. And it's supreme. And, and we're, we're being taught now that if you're a victim of intolerance, 
You might need to use violence to get your way to be seen and to be noticed, but the gospel here teaches otherwise. The gospel teaches something critical about doing the will of God, and it teaches that suffering at the hands of evil is doing God's will. That's hard for us skeptics. Jesus' family in Mark chapter 3, they were evangelists of tolerance, right? You kind of hear them kind of walking up screaming to the house. Jesus, just tolerate the status quo. Tolerate this culture. Let people be who they want to be. How many times have we heard that? Let people be who they want to be. This is the type of gospel skeptics want, by the way. It's a tolerant gospel. It's a gospel without confrontation. It's a gospel without conviction. But the gospel about Jesus that Mark writes is the antithesis of tolerance. It's a gospel of suffering. That's what it is. Let me explain this to you. Near Near the end of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned. And he was imprisoned for his participation in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Near the end of this and before he was killed, Bonhoeffer smuggled a small scrap of paper out of his prison cell just weeks before his own execution. And on that piece of paper, Bonhoeffer wrote these words. Only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God can help. The gospel about Jesus, it's new for skeptics because it shows us a God who suffers in a world that refuses to suffer for anything. And it's this gospel about Jesus. Once it takes hold in your life, it molds you and it shows you the will of God. And it gives you a supernatural boldness to do that will when it's toughest. It melts your skepticism and it replaces it with trust. Let the gospel into your life. And when you do that, watch new things, surprising things flourish where you once thought it was impossible. The gospel is God's promise that God makes all things new, including including you. Amen to that.